Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. My guest in this episode is Phil Bloomer, Executive Director of the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, an organization that reports on rights abuse allegations of more than 10,000 companies worldwide. By providing the subsequent responses by the companies, if any, the organization seeks a fair and balanced approach to transparency and accountability. I asked him if he could discuss objectives of peace in practical terms related to corporate dynamics and power, taking into consideration emerging issues of environmental, social, and governance responsibility. Business has such a fundamental role to play in in creating the conditions in which, a, a, if you like, a positive peace, you know, not just the absence of war, but the satisfying of the essential human needs and uh, for and, and personal development, people can grow. Um, you know, issues such as the living wage that needs to be paid in not just companies' operations and supply chains, but all um, um, uh, the way in which companies can either really contribute to their workers and communities around them social protection so making sure that people have got you know the the sick pay and the health insurance that they need um the uh, as i say the living wage is fundamental to uh, to the to the future of a positive peace the freedom from fear and the freedom from want uh because it, for many women workers, for instance, in Bangladesh, uh, in the apparel factories or the clothing factories of Bangladesh and Cambodia, that living wage represents so many other rights. It allows them to satisfy their right to housing, the right to health, the right to uh, education for their children, all these, uh, the right to food, etc. All those things come from having that security that comes from a, from a living wage. Now, in the pandemic, Many of those conditions were lost catastrophically um, because many, for instance, fast fashion brands simply cancelled their orders overnight using a clause called force majeure, the, um, which basically an act of God. Uh, so the pandemic allowed them to stop all the orders, even those that had been uh, had been satisfied, but and the clothes that had been made by the workers and so the workers weren't paid by the suppliers because if the supplier isn't paid the workers don't get paid so that's left for instance just to give you an instance you know we calculate that about 1.6 million garment workers in asia were laid off uh, straight after the pandemic and garment workers in asia are still owed around 12 billion dollars uh, for the work that they did to to produce clothes for the brand that the brands had ordered, but which have never been paid, you can imagine what that means in terms of the scale of of of, of vulnerability that has left a lot of those people in. And of course, in conditions of vulnerability, a lot of people will turn to solidarity between them within the community, but others will turn to strong men, and it's mainly men. Um, who were suggesting that they will sort these problems out uh, through authoritarian methods. So it's those areas that we are that, that we see just as one example of of the way in which business plays a fundamental role in defining, uh, you know, the conditions where peace can thrive. I asked about how we are to get to a state of peace where wages are fair and reliable. It seems that we have a mix of options. 
Corporate accountability is affected by things like government legislation, labor organization, consumer pressure, and the public accountability efforts that his own organization engages in. And do we have motivation within the companies themselves? To some extent, in the textile industry, some companies did honor their contracts and paid their suppliers. That's right. And those that did pay have actually found their supply chains much more resilient now because the suppliers, of course, trust those people far more than they trust the ones who use the force majeure or active good God uh, clauses in their contracts. So there are real advantages to building long-term partnerships and long-term value in companies' operations and supply chains. But of course, if a company, and the vast majority of companies are, pretty focused on the short-term return to their, to maximizing the short-term return to their shareholders at the expense of all the other stakeholders in their operations and supply chains, then they're not going to take account of that. And that's the behavior that I just described in terms of just cutting contracts and not caring whether anybody gets paid or doesn't because they protect the singular, uh, the primary uh, stakeholder, which is the shareholder as, as they see it at the expense of everybody else. So that's one of the key areas where, you know, First of all, you may have heard of ESG investing. That's to say this new rise of socially and environmentally responsible investing, which a lot of uh, younger people are wanting if they're going to, if they are going to have their pensions invested somewhere they want it to, where it's going to do good in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, fair treatment of workers and communities. And that ESG investing has a lot of opportunity to it. Um, and, can, and we, we need investors to use their leverage that comes from those responsible in, uh, investors that are giving them their money to manage. We need those uh, investment managers to demand for far more from the companies in terms of uh, responsible social and environmental behaviour. Equally, as you say, there's consumers themselves and what they demand when they go in the shops, although, to be honest, there's too much evidence that people generally want to do the right thing, but when they're in the shop, they'll tend to buy the cheapest. Um, although that's not true of everybody by any means. And then secondly, then another area is this issue, as you rightly said, of the right environment that governments create through both business regulation and business incentives to reorientate uh, the, the company behaviour away from those that are destructive of peace and the environment and, and shared prosperity towards um, actions of building that long-term value, of making sure that they are considering the other stakeholders, including communities and workers, uh, alongside the shareholders, um, and then also making sure that those companies behave, uh, are looking to their long-term uh, futures and not just to the next quarter, uh, the next three months, when they have to show a return to the shareholders, otherwise shareholders may move away. So it's in those ways, I think, that there's there's real opportunity. Now, I, I am relatively op optimistic because I see, first of all, the rise and rise of this socially and environmentally responsible investment. It's still got a long way to go and it's still very ill-defined. Um, but then secondly, a rise in the, in the appetite of governments to properly regulate 
and properly incentivize business. And you can see that in the European Union. You can also see it to a degree in the Biden administration. Um, so there are opportunities, opportunities arising there as well. As we were setting up this conversation, Phil mentioned a couple of dynamics that have tremendous effects on how we think about business going forward. One is the push for new forms of energy, the energy transition. The other dynamic is the pandemic. Both have a tremendous impact on business, of course, and on the world more broadly. Well, just to spend to, to kind of speak just a little bit more on the pandemic and then move to perhaps the energy transition. Uh, but just to finish on the pandemic, because I kind of described some of the ways in which businesses have behaved poorly. Um, I mean, the pandemic has had an appalling uh, effect on so many people in so many ways. But I think people do forget what it's like to be a worker producing the food in our cupboards, the clothes in our wardrobe and the phones in our pockets. Because uh, it's those people that have been often worst affected by the by the pandemic. First of all, as we know, you know, most of them are, are, remain entirely uh, without vaccines, um, and and therefore are far more exposed to the dangers of the of the of the disease. But equally, they've often not had the kind of um, government support and social protection, which has been prevalent across Europe and, and North America. And so those workers have been less often destitute, often women, quite often single women, working in factories with a very heavy burden of remittances back to their homes um, and, and therefore unable to even satisfy uh, those remittances back to their back to their homes, as well as look after themselves and their children in the in the slums of a city where they are based, whether that's in Phnom Penh or um, Dakar or Yangon in Myanmar, for instance. So it's now the the other thing with the pandemic, though, is that is that governments are back. I mean. <laughs> After perhaps forty years of the of the sense that you know what we need is as in Ronald Reagan's words you know the is, is smaller government is best. Um, we are now in a situation where people realise just how important governments are in terms of the essential social protections. So there is also a, a sense that governments can can and must play a fundamental role at the centre of first of all the the energy transition, the attempt to, to move away from the climate breakdown, which we are, which is already upon us, as well as dealing with the extraordinarily unsustainable levels of inequality that have grown up through the way our, our markets have operated. And just to spend a moment on that, you know, the, the pandemic has really exposed and exacerbated the inequalities of power and wealth in markets. The treatment that I described of, of women, women workers, the way they were been left destitute with their wages basically stolen, um, then uh, and unpaid for the work that they were they were uh, that was demanded of them. That kind of illustrates this extraordinary level of inequality of power. We now have, of course, the inequality of power that's growing up in digital technology. Um, 
And so again, you know, in digital technology, you've got situations, as we all know, where there is a massive, en masse, misclassification of workers as somehow self-employed. And that's now being seriously challenged and challenged also by governments, including in the European Union, to say, I'm sorry, uh, digital platforms, whether it's Amazon or Uber or Deliveroo, it doesn't matter, in the words of the UK Supreme Court, it doesn't matter how many fictions you create around the classification of workers as self-employed, they're still your workers. You still have a duty of care in terms of the essential law, where, which guarantees sick pay, which guarantees holiday pay, etc. And you have to pay the national insurance contribution, which our state relies on in order to be able to provide you know, unemployment benefit, health, et cetera, et cetera. So it's in that light that, that governments are also back now and I think more assertive in saying there are now, we have to address some of this, the worst of this inequality, which of course, an inequality threatens peace because it drives polarization. Now, just to come on, if I may, to the issue of the energy transition uh, or the, tran the, as we would describe it, a just transition to clean energy. You know, we are at a place where we have to effectively go through a massive industrial revolution in the space of the next nine years. That's the challenge that's upon us, where we have to halve carbon emissions globally in the next nine years. And to do that, we're going to have to have an inordinate move of shutting down the, our dirty industries, as well as a big move in opening up our clean industries uh, and clean energy. And what we're concerned about at the moment is as we open up the clean energy and shut down the dirty industry, we have to do that in ways which don't exacerbate polarization, which don't exacerbate conflict and distrust, but rather use the enormous potential of this, uh, of this new industrial revolution to really build co-benefit so that people can, you know, we, sh we should be moving to clean energy even if there wasn't a climate crisis because we don't want uh, air that we can't breathe. We don't want water that we can't drink. So it, the, the, there are massive co-benefits to this, to this shift. Um, and so we want to ensure that through the respect for human rights, we can open up these new, uh, uh, new opportunities in ways that really generate a, a, a public will and, uh, and, um, and, and desire for that new future. Because if we do it in the way that has been done in a number of countries, such as you know, France a few years ago, where they simply just increased the uh, price of fuel, we will get what we got in France a few years ago, which is the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, who went out onto the street as as rural, primarily rural people who said, you have not understood the conditions that we are in. We need put either public transport or the ability to use our cars. If you're just going to force us to now pay double for all our transport costs, then there's no deal because all you're doing is passing all the costs down to the poorest in our population. And we are not going to be prepared to simply absorb all the costs of the energy transition. The enormous 
enormous wins of the of the energy transition, such as the building of wind farms, etc. All those uh, extraordinary uh, gains are coming into those that are already shareholders, because there's massive in increase in shareholder prices for renewable energy, for instance. So all that's to the good. But if that all that is going, all that benefit is going to be accumulated by a small, uh, relatively rich group of society, and all the costs are going to be passed down to the poorest in society, we're going to get an equal and opposite reaction. And we will not get the fast transition that we need. So we need a fast, we need a fair transition in order to get a fast transition. So to give you just a few instances of that, you know, the, the situation is that we've got to build a very large number of wind turbines, of solar panels, for instance. To do that, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to gain access to something like six times the amount of these key transition minerals, such as lithium for batteries, cobalt, copper for the big transition transmission lines, etc. All these transition minerals are fundamentally important. Now, if we dig those out of the ground and simply remove the people that are already there, we are going to get that same equal and opposite reaction. We're going to get suspensions through protests and blockades, etc. In fact, we've looked at the uh, we've looked at the record of the companies that are the mining companies that are uh, involved in this mining in, in this in this just in the extraction of these in the mining of these uh, transition minerals. We already have 300 allegations against 115 transition mineral mining companies, mainly around the violation of indigenous land rights regarding water pollution, health threats, corruption, and the systemic failure to consult local communities. You know, you've got a situation like the lithium triangle, which is in the, 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 the most important sources of lithium, that's in the Atacama Desert in Chile, one of the driest places on the earth. The water there is therefore of an enormous value to those indigenous communities that have really been forced into those most arid zones. Over many years since the conquistadores arrived the, um, uh, in 1492. So they've got nowhere else to go that's, because if it's more arid than the Atacama Desert, there's no way to live. Now, What's happening is the mining companies are going to say, oh, well, we need that water to flush out the lithium from these salt pans. So you can all forget your water and irrigation, etc. And so there's this enormous uh, conflict which is, which is upon us and which has to be resolved in a way which generates co-benefit. If those indigenous companies, sorry, if those indigenous communities realise that actually they're going to get a serious revenue stream from the extraction of lithium, then there may well be a way in which they, are, they, they will be in favour. If this just leads to their destitution and the extinction of their indigenous nation, because, not, because they will just have to leave and go to the slums of, of Santiago de Chile, then there's going to be no deal. There will be total resistance. And that's just, that's just the reality of what a just transition, or in this case, an unjust transition would look like and its effects. So to get a fast transition, we need a fair transition. Before we wrapped up our conversation, I asked about the costs of renewable energy, especially the social costs, and how they can best be managed. The only other thing to mention is perhaps on the renewable energy, uh, is on this transition to renewable energy. 
alongside the creation of all these photovoltaic cells and the wind turbines and etc there's then going to have to be a large amount of land used to generate that electricity either for wind farms or solar farms but these uh, you know we're going to have to generate not just electricity for all the uh, all the electricity that's currently generated by fossil fuels but we've also got all the transport because we're going to have to move all the cars and the lorries etc into electric so that's going to take even more electricity generation so the land area that's likely to be necessary is very substantial now that land belongs to somebody of course as i say many indigenous nations for instance in the americas have been moved since 1492 these indigenous nations have been have been moved from the fertile lowlands where they used to grow <laughs> lush crops into the most arid zones now good for solar into the most infertile uplands now good for wind into the most broken river valleys now good for hydro and so again the danger is that these that we're going to get an equal and opposite reaction unless those communities feel that there's a, a benefit to them because otherwise it's just the extinction of their nation and their communities now i'll give you just to finish one i think very important you know positive example here the first nations of canada generate a very substantial proportion of the renewable energy and they do it often in a relationship of co-ownership with the renewable energy companies the renewable energy companies are forced to create that co-ownership because the indigenous nations have title to their land formal title and so they now have developed a, a co-ownership model the indigenous communities benefit because they've got a long-term reliable revenue stream they're actually building the equivalent of sovereign wealth funds for themselves you know um and the companies get in, get get very stable investment because they know those uh, these extraordinary uh, expensive wind farms and solar farms are going to be very well looked after by the indigenous community the same is true for the maori in new zealand where they have land title and where the maori are now involved in co-ownership models regarding um regarding geothermal energy so those are just two examples of what that future of co-benefit can really look like where people feel that, that we can generate a place where everyone can thrive where companies can thrive and the communities can thrive alongside them and the workers can thrive within those industries thank you for listening to this episode of human rights magazine the podcast is brought to you by the upstream journal i invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through paypal as you explore other episodes thank you for listening to this episode of human rights magazine the podcast is brought to you by the upstream journal i invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through paypal as you explore other episodes <laughs>